Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. On September 18th, 2020, the country lost a legal and cultural icon, United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg, who turned 87 in March, was a public servant throughout her professional life. She was a tenacious lawyer, an empathetic law professor, and a fierce justice. Justice Ginsburg, who was nominated by Bill Clinton in 1993 to fill the seat that was vacated by Justice Byron White, was the second woman on the court joining Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. Following her fiery dissent in the 2013 Shelby Counter v. Holder case, where the court in a 5-4 decision gutted the Voting Rights Act, Justice Ginsburg became a cultural icon and received the moniker Notorious RBG, which is a play on the rapper Biggie Smalls' Notorious B.I.G. nickname. While she was a larger-than-life figure, first gaining widespread fame in her 80s, she was also a regular person dealing with challenges that so many of us face. Her beloved husband died of cancer a decade ago, and Justice Ginsburg herself had several bouts of cancer before succumbing to complications from pancreatic cancer. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the life and legacy of United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And joining us for this discussion is our very own North Carolina Supreme Court Associate Justice, Anita Earls. Justice Earls, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, thank you for having me. So I'd like to first start by asking you, when you first became familiar with Justice Ginsburg? Well, I started uh, law school in 1985. So I I remember when there was only one woman on the court. um, And I think that um, it was, for me, as a woman in law school in those days, believe it or not, um, only about a third of my law school class were women. So we were still uh, numerically very much in the minority. And, and so it was, um, I think for me, seeing her elevated to the court and not only the fact that she was a woman being um, confirmed for the U.S. Supreme Court, but also because of her particular background um, working as an advocate for uh, women's issues and women's equality and her role um, with the ACLU, those things also were encouraging to me as a, as a law student and a young attorney. Um, it was both her presence on the court and her background that gave me great encouragement. So you mentioned that, so you became aware of her when you were in law school and uh, the percentage of women were was small as well. And of course, we know that when Justice Ginsburg was in law school, she was one of very few women. Can you talk about the um, having to deal with 
being in an environment that is uh, doesn't have as the type of representation that we certainly would hope to have and that we see much more of today and how that may have shaped and that we know shaped Justice Ginsburg's um, advocacy and how you being in a similar situation may have shaped your advocacy as a lawyer? Well, that's an interesting question. I think uh, it certainly changes everything about how legal issues are viewed and analyzed when you are in a in a when you come from a perspective and an experience that is that is substantially different from all of your peers um i think uh, justice ginsburg's early career particularly her experience um being she was a mother while she was in law school um and so married a mother and her husband was um ill with cancer while she was in law school um so the you know as her um as the films about her life depict um you know what 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 an incredible uh, fortitude she had her personal courage and her commitment and dedication to her goals uh, is extraordinary. So, so I was also uh, I was pregnant my first term in law school, but I did not have a, um, the added challenge of a husband trying to uh, study at the same time and being ill. So, so it it, it really gave, I certainly have a deep appreciation of the the personal courage that she had. H how it affects um, your perspective, I think, um, just means that you bring. You bring a, um, a different background than than maybe what is seen as the uh, prevailing views, and that to me means you add a, a dimension to the the issues that you advocate for a, a different dimension at once you're on the bench to the perspective that you bring to the controversies that come before you, even those controversies that may not involve necessarily civil rights issues or women's issues or um, I think it, it really does impact all of the issues that you're looking at. Well, you know, let me, um, speaking as a uh, proud alum of uh, Rutgers uh, Law School, where uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg uh, started her legal career as a professor uh, there. When, when I went to law school, she had uh, just left. Uh, and uh, but she had a reputation that permeated uh, throughout uh, the uh, the school. People were always talking about her as she then became uh, an activist. And I'm wondering uh, if her the barriers that she encountered after getting out of law school, unable to get a job with the major law firms, and actually kind of being pushed into teaching as a uh, career uh, helped to shape her advocacy such that she became an architect of uh, women's rights uh, issues as, uh, as an academic. And then all, as she went on to the uh, ACLU. Uh, and, and what's your view about how she ended up becoming this strong starch woman, women's advocate uh, in the in the law. From my perspective, it seems to me it might have, in part, uh, contributed to and motivated what some might call her gradualism. 
but she but she had the long view and she it, it, certainly while she was an advocate bringing a case after case seeking to advance equal rights for women before the court it, it was a very incremental gradualist you know will knock down this barrier and then the next barrier and then the next barrier and certainly that was what her life experience taught her so she ran up against one barrier and she said okay I'm gonna I'm gonna incrementally do the next step that um, I can possibly do and keep pushing forward so I think you see mirrored in her life experiences, her approach towards how to change legal doctrine. And, and also you just can't help but reflect on some of her more famous arguments in, in, when she was an advocate in the US Supreme Court, um, her perspective that women are not asking for special treatment, they're just asking that you take your uh, feet off our necks, um, that's, clearly what her her lived experience was i'm not asking that you give me special treatment just give me a chance to show what i can do as a lawyer which sounds very similar to uh thurgood marshall and julius chambers as they argued uh be uh before the court on behalf of uh african americans uh, who were seeking to uh, get the uh, shoe off uh our necks uh during uh during, during that time so uh uh, and I and I and I appreciate that. Um, and then, do you think that at that stage, that her long view included a tenure on the uh, U.S. Supreme Court? You know, my guess is probably not. Uh, but by the time she was appointed to the D.C. Circuit, I think then. Um, those possibilities and those doors opened up. Um, but I, I think that, that probably no one starts out their career expecting that they will ultimately be on the U.S. Supreme Court. Especially um, a woman who, despite graduating at the very top of her class, uh, is unable to get a clerkship at the Supreme Court, which was the case with Justice Ginsburg, or even get the types of um, you know, uh, big firm legal jobs, which was the case for Justice Ginsburg. So, um, but that kind of raises a question. So the barriers, did you ever have the sense in your, in your study of her, did you ever have the sense that she questioned her own ability to certainly rise to that level? So even if there were structural barriers, did you, ever get a sense that uh, she accepted the, the boundaries that society may have been placing on her in terms of her ability to do the work? That, I, don't, I don't think we can know easily. There are, um, there's a lot of material out there about her and her own um, thoughts about her role in the law. I certainly never heard any hints from anything she personally said that suggested she questioned either her own ability or her own right. I, remember, this is the woman who, when asked how many women there should be on the US Supreme Court, said nine, <laughs> because it used to be all male and nobody questioned that. So it, it, at least outwardly, 
whatever might have gone on in her moments of reflection outwardly, she never presented, at least as far as I'm aware of, anything other than um, complete confidence in, in, in the equality that she shared um, with all of her male colleagues. Mm-hmm. And that raises, uh, you know, an, the she argued some cases before the Supreme Court. So she had a number of cases where she uh, wrote briefs. She had an opportunity to argue before the Supreme Court. And I think I recall reading or hearing that um, it was suggested that maybe a man should argue the case. And she was pretty insistent that that she do it, which kind of speaks to um, her willingness to, to do the work, to step out in front, um, even though there were those that may have been telling her that, you know, as a woman, she might not be good enough. And I think that that's a characteristic that you see in, in so many successful women across fields, like not only in the legal field, but in general, that willingness to put yourself forward, even when others are not encouraging you or others who are actively suggesting that you shouldn't be in that role because you're a woman, that throughout history and today, we that, that continues to be a characteristic that women have. And, and I've been quite influenced by some of the re- recent scholarship that has emerged about how often women are interrupted when they argue in the U.S. Supreme Court and how often women justices are interrupted by their male peers on the court. And I think that that speaks to that scholarship, which, uh, you know, uses the modern technology that we have of all these arguments being recorded and you can count the number of words and all those good things. I, I think it is an important uh, check for all of us in the in the judiciary generally, and litigators overall, to recognize that we still have challenges with women as litigators having um, equal time, having their having a level playing field, and that we have to be very conscious of that. As an activist, and uh, you, you, you've been one, um, how do you take that history of activism and incorporate that into the development of a judicial philosophy or a judicial temperament uh, that you carry with you in the um, evaluations of uh, cases that come before your court? Well, from my perspective, I, I am not any different from any other person who joins the court. I have served or my legal career was in a particular area of law. I had a particular role as a, as a litigator, but all of my colleagues had various roles and various uh, interests that they represented either in private practice or in other settings. And, and so I, I think it's from my perspective, uh, the, obviously, the role of a judge is different from the role of counsel for a party. Uh, I sometimes struggle with the fact that I no longer get to write the briefs. <laughs> <laughs> I, but but the that that is, I think it's a mistake and it's a it's an improper framing to suggest that those who are seen as conservative 
are fun in some fundamental sense having a different judicial philosophy than those who are considered um, more progressive. Uh, there are activists among all sides would be my point. And the, the I think the main difference, I, I, I've been reading about um, the judicial philosophy of, of President Trump's nominee to fill Justice Ginsburg's seat and um, contrasting that to what some of the other women on the currently on the court, so Justice Sotomayor, for example, or Justice Kagan, what they would say their judicial philosophies are. And, and I, I think the main distinction I would put it that as, as I see it, is the extent to which you're willing to acknowledge or deny that your personal experiences and personal background have some role or, or influence on how you view the issues that come before you. Because everyone says they are fair and impartial, they applied a lot of the facts, but the question is, do you hold yourself up as some kind of completely neutral arbiter devoid of any perspectives, or do you understand that we all come to this work with, with preconceived notions, biases, assumptions that are the inevitable product of how our minds work, and that the, that the way to be fair is to acknowledge those and then um, address the issues, remembering and reminding yourself that you have those um, experiences, biases, um, and, and perspectives. Okay. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we're talking with uh, Associate Justice Anita Earle of the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court, and we're discussing the uh, legacy of uh, Associate uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We're going to take our break right now, and I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this, uh, this conversation. Uh, we'll be right back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have the wonderful pleasure of talking with North Carolina Associate Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls about the life and legacy of United States Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Earls, right before the break you were talking about uh, ju judicial philosophies and, and the differences oftentimes that we see um, in judges and justices on the court. And you talked about uh, part of how judges may approach their work will depend in part on the degree by which they acknowledge that they are bringing their background and personal experiences to bear as they are making these decisions. And that made me think about uh, one of the reasons why it's so important that we have diversity on the bench. And, and as you noted, none of us can, because we're all human, we cannot divorce ourselves from our lived experiences and um, our viewpoints. And we can evolve and change, but we can't completely separate uh, our experiences that, that have brought us to where we are or, or brought judges to where they are. Can you talk about 
in, in light of um, people having different experiences, can you talk about the need for diversity on the court and how having diverse voices and perspectives on the court may actually lead to better results? Yes, I think when you look at what uh, scholars say about the value of diversity, there's the descriptive diversity concept that it, it just instills faith in the court as an institution when its members reflect the population. That, and certainly that is one value of diversity. And uh, under that view, it actually doesn't matter what the individual justices particular life experiences might be, what matters is whether they descriptively, so by gender, you could think of other categories in addition to, to gender and race, age, um, what law school you went to. There's a, there's a wide range of demographic, easily measurable, do, do these people represent the population and the country as a whole? Geographic, for the US Supreme Court, geographic representation could matter. All of those things would, be getting at whether descriptively you, you the court is diverse. But a second type of diversity is, is more qualitative and perhaps harder to measure, but that's substantive diversity. And I think that is where truly the backgrounds and life experiences come into play. And for people who take the view that a, a judge once they put on the robes, uh, become uh, completely neutral and, and are simply in some kind of ministerial fashion, mathematically, they are just applying the law of the facts and you could take any 10 people off the street and put the robe on them and they would still apply the law of the facts exactly the same way, assuming I suppose they had a law degree, but that you, this, this kind of ministerial notion of, of judicial, the judicial function being um, completely sterile and, and um, not coming from any perspective. The, from that point of view, you don't need diversity because anybody in theory, be, uh, if all you're doing is in a mathematical way, applying the law of the facts, two plus two always equals four, then you don't really, it doesn't matter who is um, in that role because it's just, um, fair and partial and um, objectively, you couldn't come to a different point of view. And, and I just think that doesn't comport with our the reality of the, the way cases are decided and the controversies that come before courts. It's just not that simple. I mean, when I think about the, the, the mandate to provide equal justice under the law, how you define what equality is and how it should apply in any individual case is, is actually tremendously difficult. And there are a lot of judgment calls. And what we as a society most highly value is the wisdom of jurists who can apply those concepts and those ethical norms in a, in a way that um, we that that in, in a sort of timeless way is, is seen as fair. So if you're looking at diversity from a substantive point of view, then, and I also think quite frankly that democracy has this notion that we make the best decisions when we all come to the table, all the people involved in making the decision come to the table with their best effort. And, it, and to some degree, it's like that 
in my mind, it's like the image of the elephant and, and a, 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 a multitude of blind people at different points describing what they feel. Uh, you're gonna come up with the best approximation of what the elephant is if you hear from everyone. And not every, some people will be at the tail, some people will be at the trunk and you, you need everyone's perspective. And I do think that ultimately the evolution of jurisprudence and our law is best informed when we do have everyone's perspective substantively, not just descriptively. And, and there was a, a 2009 case, and this was after Justice O'Connor had retired from the bench and Justice Ginsburg was the only um, female justice on the court. And there was a case involving uh, the thir a 13-year-old who was strip searched at school. And Justice Ginsburg was able to share a perspective that her colleagues on the bench, all of whom are male, were male, just didn't really get. And so that kind of speaks to your point about having, you know, it does provide for a more um, enriching, comprehensive decision when you have those other voices. Um, so that's always, that's one of my, you know, favorite uh, stories to tell about the impact that Justice Ginsburg had on the bench and why diversity is so important. Oh, I think that's an excellent example. If, if I recall correctly, the issue was whether, uh, you know, how would a 13-year-old girl feel? Um, and, or, or let me say what Justice Ginsburg brought to that case was a, the ability to understand why that would feel invasive mm -hmm. to a young person. And, and, and I think that that was one of the uh, roles that, uh, that she played as well as uh, other racial minorities when they enter uh, or join the bench is curing the understanding gap uh, that uh, exists uh, from people with different life stories and different understanding of how life operates. Uh, the, the case that, uh, you know, in terms of Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg that comes to my mind is the uh, VMI case. Uh, dealing with the admission of uh, women into uh, state-supported uh, uh, colleges and, and universities, uh, where she had to take the law a step further as she developed this uh, what a, a exceedingly persuasive persuasive justification uh, to as a, a standard for measuring uh, whether there was a, a rational basis for. Uh, creating an all-male institution uh, there. And I think that that flowed from this uh, understanding gap that she was able to cure and was able to bring around a, a majority of the uh, court to uh, adopt uh, the view that uh, VMI's policy of excluding women uh, was uh, unconstitutional. Uh, so how do you see this the, 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 the necessity of dealing with this understanding gap is still being something present today. Well, I think one of the more heartwarming moments in some of the films about Justice Ginsburg's life is when she goes back to VMI after uh, several years of that decision being implemented and the young female cadets there being so grateful to her that she opened up doors and gave them opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. The, so we, in that instance, we got to see not only how she changed the perspective of the court and, and allowed that decision to come out the way it did, but also then the real world impact. 
and the and the difference it made in people's lives. I, I think obviously you see the same thing from Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall's legacy, and and you can read about how other justices said he he brought to the court a perspective that had not been heard around their conference table up to that point. And the truth is we still need a variety of perspectives that we don't all have the same experience in this country. And the importance is not only for the, the legitimacy of the court and the development of legal doctrine, but it's the real world impacts. It's what kind of society ultimately re will result. And so I look at the court's docket coming up this next year, and there are cases that address uh, issues like uh, police use of excessive force. And um, there, so that is an issue that from the demonstrations we've had this past summer, we know is deeply divisive in this country. And we should have a court that can approach that from a variety of perspectives. Yeah, and uh, Justice Ginsburg and I and I definitely want to explore that a little bit more. But before we do, you had mentioned that being on the bench, uh, you oftentimes miss um, or maybe think nostalgically about writing the briefs because you were, you know, such a, a prolific um, brief writer and an impact attorney. And when Irv mentioned VMI, one of the things I love sharing with my students is we talk about. Uh, gender discrimination is we read the cases where Justice Ginsburg played a role in in writing briefs. And so one of the wonderful things about her authoring that VMI decision is that she was involved in laying the groundwork uh, and then for her to be able to kind of even shape the law further. Can you talk about if, if whether you've had an experience where you are having to decide a case where you played a role as an attorney kind of shaping the discussion and laying the legal groundwork. I wonder if you have a parallel experience that we saw uh, Justice Ginsburg have with the VMI case. I, I, there, I don't yet. I've, I've not been, I've only been on the court uh, um, almost two years, but the, and in legal terms, that's actually not, not very long at all. But I will. What I will say is that my point about not being able to write the briefs is is really a broader point about how crucial the advocates are in the process. So it, it, it's it's appropriate to focus on Justice Ginsburg's time while she was on the court, uh, but she also had such a huge impact as an advocate, and I think that's an important lesson for um, anyone in law school considering going to law school. To, to never minimize or, or underestimate the key role that you have in deciding which cases to bring, how to, which claims to bring in your cases, how to shape those claims, which evidence to put on to support those claims, that has tremendous impact on the, the, how the court will view the case and, and what the court can do. I mean, if you don't raise an argument, then you know, we don't get to consider it. So, so as judges, we are really at the mercy of the advocates and, and they are the ones who have the real impact. Can you talk about, along those lines, the strategy and the approach? And so we know that Justice Ginsburg uh, took, um, uh, we know that Justice Ginsburg thought of 
Thurgood Marshall as a role model. And she modeled him in the sense that you'd be very strategic about which cases to take, which claims to bring. And uh, many of her gender discrimination cases, uh, she brought claims on behalf of men who were being discriminated against as a, as a way to try to push the law forward um, where you have a bench of all men at the time. Can you talk about when we're thinking about uh, advocates and legal strategy, can you just share with our listeners what are the best practices for lawyers or what lawyers should think about when they are trying to decide uh, how best to strategize a case so that there can be that meaningful impact? I think it's very difficult to be general on this issue because it depends. So to the extent, do you argue for a, a small change in the law or do you try to overturn a bad precedent, kind of like, like go for go for everything? And the, the answer to that is highly dependent on the facts you have in front of you, the clients you're representing, and and the 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 times that we're in. So so I don't know if you would consider the marriage equality cases to be, you know, which which model you think they fit into, but there I there are just a number of different ways of approaching what is ultimately the goal, I think, of, of getting us closer to equal justice under the law. And it, it's highly dependent on the, the circumstances you're in. I just, I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to how you approach that. I, I do think that even if you aren't likely to win, that, that, that or if it seems at the time you're not likely to win, that, that pursuing your clients what, what is justice for your clients, pursuing that through the court system is valuable. And I, I think back to conversations I had with Julius Chambers about his uh, doing the school desegregation, Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg, because I was at the Ferguson Stein law firm at the time that the lawsuit that undid Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg, the Capaccioni lawsuit was originally filed. And so I, I was complaining <laughs> to, to Julia Chambers that, you know, this is, this is so hard and we have everybody against us. And you were so lucky when you brought Swan because at least you had the whole community behind you. And, you know, you won this great victory for, for integrating public schools. And he looked at me and he's like, are you crazy? We didn't have the whole, we didn't even have the whole black community behind us. Not, not everyone agreed that integrating schools was the best thing to do for our children. Not everyone was on board with us filing this lawsuit. And, and it really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that um, he, he, in his career, and, and to some degree, I think um, I, this is true of uh, Justice Ginsburg as well. He took a, a, an individual whose genuine claim for justice uh, may have seemed out of step with the times, may have seen way beyond what you could expect the court. You know, he, he said to me, no one thought that, that Judge McMillan would do what he did in the, in the Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg school case. No one thought he would do that. And yet um, the, the, the attorneys were determined, their clients were determined to stand up for what they believed was right. And ultimately they were successful. Well, in, in, in that mix, then, can you kind of talk about uh, what differentiates the so-called conservative judge from the liberal 
judge within the context of uh, deciding uh, these uh, constitutional uh, claims that's, uh, that's presented? Well, I think they, you can look at their self-descriptions and, and then you can look at the actual opinions and cases that are issued. And in their self-descriptions, we know that conservative judges would say they are textualists and that they, that they adhere to the original intent of the framers when the constitution was uh, written and when the amendments were passed and they go back to the original intent and uh, they just enforce that. But we, we know that these days the court is called upon to decide issues and controversies that could not have even been conceived by the framers of the constitution. So the liberal, the liberal perspective, uh, self-description of what they are doing um, is, is, is more a concept of a constitutional framework that evolves to continue to serve the, the democracy. I, I, think the, I think the reality is a lot more messy, that, that, that textualism isn't as clean as the conservatives would like it to be, and that um, that the evolving notion isn't as flexible necessarily when um so so it's it's I, 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 my observation from just reading cases it is that the is that the process is a lot messier than either side would want to suggest it is you're listening to the legal eagle review here on wncu 90.7 fm and we've been talking about the life and legacy of Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And joining us here in our Zoom studio is North Carolina Supreme Court Associate Justice Anita Earls. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We will be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Voting is a fundamental right and a cornerstone of American government. When voters turn out for federal, state, and local elections, we can hold politicians accountable and make critical decisions about how our tax dollars are spent or what we want for our communities. If you need to register to vote for the first time or update your voter registration, there are three ways that you can do that. You can register to vote online through the NCDMV website, in person at your local county board of elections, or during early voting. In North Carolina, voter registration applications are due 25 days before the general election. That means that residents must have registered by October 9th. However, individuals who are not registered to vote in a county may register at early voting sites during the early voting period. That's right. After registering, the voter can immediately vote at that same site. This process is called same-day registration. Please note that same-day registration is only available during early voting. Voters cannot register to vote on election day. Early voting and same-day registration is scheduled to begin this Thursday, October the 15th, and will end on October the 31st. Our democracy works best when all voices are represented. Every vote matters. Your vote matters. Virtual Justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. 
Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, and thank you so very much for staying with us as we continue our discussion about the uh, legacy of U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice uh, Ginsburg was uh, uh, a legend uh, on the uh, on, on the court. Was an architect of uh, women's rights and was a strong advocate uh, for those interests as a uh, Supreme Court. Uh, justice. And uh, we're talking with uh, our own associate justice here from the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court, and that is uh, Associate Justice Anita Earls, who has now been on the court for about uh, about two years. Uh, and we're kind of grilling her <laughs> about her uh, judicial philosophy and how the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has uh, impacted uh, not only her as a, uh, a justice of the, of the court, but uh, women in the law and women generally, and it benefited uh, those uh, those populations or the entire population that, that we have. Let me just uh, kind of say, because you, know, you, you talk about this uh, textualism, uh, which is uh, kind of a vague uh, term in a sense, but, you know, just talking about equal protection jurisprudence, uh, for, for example, um, it appears that as the originalists uh, discuss equal protection, uh, they revert back to the uh, philosophies of the founding fathers rather than those founders of the uh, 14th Amendment and the equal protection notion. And it seems to me that that's kind of an inappropriate uh, uh, context in which to uh, promote origin, original, or, original, originalism or textualism uh, from that uh, vantage point. How, how do you how do you see that? Well, I, I, again, I think at some level these distinctions are not that meaningful and so not that helpful. I, I think the equal protection jurisprudence and and doctrine has evolved to a place that could not have been contemplated when um, the 14th Amendment was enacted. And I just that just seems so incredibly obvious to me. And so the real question is, is, is the doctrine being applied in a way that is that is serving the underlying intent of of Making sure that everyone in 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 our society is treated equally. That's that's at the end of the day what it what it should be achieving. And and if it's not, then then courts need to take some responsibility for that. And and I take great um, inspiration and great heart from Chief Justice Sherry Beasley's pronouncement when she held a press conference shortly after the death of George Floyd and acknowledged that our courts in North Carolina. Um, have not are not where they need to be on issues of racial and and she I think also cares deeply about gender equity but she I, we need to take that seriously um, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't quickly comment on two other areas of Justice Ginsburg legacy if I may um, mm -hmm. that deal with judicial philosophy but in a slightly from a slightly different angle and that is both that she worked really hard 
and that she highly valued collegial relations with her colleagues. Uh, her, her, her willingness to put in extra hours continued throughout her legal career to the very end. And that I find really encouraging because it says to all of us that whatever barriers you face, one thing that you do control is how much energy and effort you put into whatever you're doing. And while I'm not trying to foster workaholics and there are, there's a lot of stress and pressure in the legal field, uh, we all have to take care of ourselves, but, but understanding the value and the fundamental um, nature of just giving it your best shot, working hard, giving it your, your best effort, I, I think is, a, is a, a lesson that she can, her legacy teaches us. And on the issue of collegiality, I think that is one that we need to, especially in these times, remember that we can disagree with someone but still respect their essential humanity and still um, engage with someone who we disagree with vehemently um, in a way that acknowledges, respects, and um, fully recognizes their humanity. Yeah, clearly there was no better example uh, of that than uh, the relationship that uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg shared with uh, Justice Scalia. Uh, I mean, ideologically, they were at opposite ends of the uh, podium, but were uh, described as the best of friends uh, in the uh, collegial uh, context. Uh, how important is collegiality on the court? It's extremely important. And I think it's important not only because in an appellate setting, whether you are on a three-judge panel in a court of appeals or a federal circuit court, or whether you're in a larger seven or nine-judge panel on a on a Supreme Court, you don't get to make any decision by yourself. You you have to convince at, at least some of your colleagues um, that, that 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 they should agree with you. And and the other thing to remember is no person is right 100% of the time. So, so you have to approach this with the humility that you have something to learn from colleagues that even if you uh, come from very different backgrounds. So, so the collegiality, I think, uh, contributes to those things. Uh, but it also, I think it bleeds over into how advocates are treated when they come to, our, to argue in our courts. And, and that is equally important, that, that you may think that everything that lawyer in front of you is arguing is, is wrong and they didn't prepare well enough and they're not, they've got the record wrong. Whatever you think about the quality of their oral advocacy, um, it's still so important that, that they be um, afforded the respect and the, and the um, equal time, equal treatment that, that every other advocate gets. Um, so, so I think collegiality also influences how the court interfaces with the public and that that's important as well. So Justice Earl, so you mentioned that, you know, judges and justices, appellate judges, uh, Supreme Court justices are trying to uh, persuade their colleagues to agree with them. Uh, sometimes a majority do not, and justices find that they have to write dissents. And Justice Ginsburg, as we uh, noted, um, she became this cultural icon, this notorious RBG, after a very powerful dissent that she wrote. Can you talk about 
the power of the dissent? It is challenging because the the dissent is not the the prevailing view in that particular case. The, there are plenty of classic examples where ultimately it becomes the prevailing view. And sometimes that can happen in a couple of years or sometimes it takes 20 or 30 years. I think it, it's powerful because it uh, highlights that there are, there's more than one legitimate way to look at an issue um, and more than one legitimate way to apply the lot of the facts. One thing I'll say about Justice Ginsburg's dissents is that she never uh, denigrated the, she never, th th they didn't contain personal attacks. They might have been strongly worded. Uh, she, she also was so um, effective in using analogies that, that hammered home her point, uh, but she didn't engage in um, uh, ad hominem attacks on her on her other justices. You know, she didn't she didn't um, imply they were lazy or or not intelligent or anything like that. She was engaging with the issues, and 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 that I think is important as well. That that you can write a dissent expressing strongly held views with in a way that's that continues to be dignified with integrity and maintains the the um, respect for the court. You know, one of the other dissents that I love to talk to my students about is the Lily Ledbetter dissent. Uh, and that was a case in, in 2007 where the majority of the court said in a Title VII claim involving gender discrimination uh, that the uh, plaintiff, Lily Ledbetter, had missed out on on a large percentage of her damages because of time issues uh, in terms of when that she was required to bring her claim, notwithstanding the fact that she wasn't aware that she was being paid a different rate, rate than her male counterparts. And Justice Ginsburg in her dissent counseled Congress to pass a law to overrule the Supreme Court's decision, which was based on statutory interpretation. So this wasn't a case where the Supreme Court was ruling on a constitutional issue. It really had to do with more of a statutory regulatory issue. And uh, the Supreme Court, um, or well, rather Congress did, and that was the law, the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was the first law that was signed by President Obama. Um, and so again, another example of, of the power of, um, of dissent. Um, Justice Earls, you mentioned the upcoming term. And so we, the Supreme Court has started its 2020-2021 term. And we know there will be a number of important cases. Can you talk about um, how, and you've already talked about, touched upon this before, how the makeup of the court is vitally important in deciding issues that will affect all of us. We know we've got a case involving the Affordable Care Act. Um, can you talk about this upcoming term and your thoughts about some of the key cases that the court will have to address? What I can say is that we, it's vitally important that we continue to have trust and respect in the institutions of our government. Um, I, I actually probably shouldn't comment on any pending cases before the court, uh, but I think 
in general, I can say they are deciding some issues that are of fundamental importance to people in this country, to people's lives, uh, particularly the, in, in the face of the challenges we, we are enduring as a, the world in, a, in the midst of a pandemic. So, so there's, it, it's clear the huge impact that the court this term will have. It's, you know, sometimes commentators will say, oh, it's a quiet term, nothing too controversial. No one could say that about this term and this docket. Whether it matters that there are eight versus nine members of the court, I think is, is a lot harder to assess. And uh, I think we've seen in some of the decisions that were issued at the end of last term, uh, justices voting in ways that weren't predicted. So, so I, I think we have to allow the process to work its way out. That is allow the um, briefs to be written, the advocates to make their arguments and the justices to deliberate. And we, we can't make too many predictions at this point other than to say we know they will have a huge impact on our lives. Well, let me ask you about the, uh, just a couple of minutes to talk about the uh, importance and the importance of the state Supreme Court and the differences between issues that the state Supreme Court is uh, dealing with and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, might uh, might be dealing with. Well, the state, I would say in general, our docket, the state Supreme Court is, is more um, heavily criminal cases uh, because so much of um, so many of the people who are incarcerated, it's uh, under state law. Most of what happens in the criminal justice system happens in the state system. If you just look numerically, um, in terms of number of people convicted, number of, of crimes um, charged, so we have more. So we are deciding more constitutional issues in the context of criminal cases. Although certainly there are, there are plenty of criminal cases in the federal system as well, but I just think that balance is a little different in our court. Uh, the other, I mean, we're going to get our share of voting cases. I'm guessing we're get, we have education issues. We have um, some state pension issues pending, some consumer issues, some tort issues. So, uh, tort laws may be another area where there are fewer cases in the federal system than there are in our court. The legislature mandated that our state Supreme Court be the first court and only court of review for termination of parental rights cases. So if you look at the, I think it's maybe 110, 115 opinions that our court has already issued in 2020, I think um, close to half of them are termination of parental rights cases. Um, so that's a interesting wrinkle uh, about uh, North Carolina state courts, but also obviously very important cases that impact people's lives. So, so we certainly have a full docket ahead of us. And what I would say about our court is that um, you can see from our opinions that we we don't all agree. There are there are we make four or three decisions. Uh, there are some splinters and fractures in some of our opinions. And um, it, does, it does make a difference who we have on our court. Justice Earls, you mentioned that we, the public needs to trust and respect the courts. I'm 
um, pleased that there is more interest, I think, in the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, the North Carolina Supreme Court. Can you talk about the importance of the public having an understanding of our courts, both at the federal level and also at the state level, uh, and in terms of um, just, I guess, understanding how the government works and the more people understand the court, the better it is that the public is able to um, have an impact on that. Well, I think my point was coming from the perspective of it's important that the court operate in a way that earns the public's trust. And what we know from Chief Justice Martin's commission on the administration of law and justice is that, in, they, so they did public opinion polling, and this was uh, several years ago, so not even in the current political context, but uh, uh, greater than 50% of the people didn't feel that our courts in North Carolina right now were, were treating everyone equally and fairly. So that is, that is a huge issue that the court system needs to address. And I think I was also speaking about that from the perspective of being on the governor's task force for racial equity and criminal justice, which, which is only dealing with criminal justice, not the whole court system entirely, but it, it's, it's really important that we operate, that the court system, that justice is administered in a way that um, is, is fair to everyone, and, and we have a lot of work to do. Well, thank you so much, Justice Earls. We are out of time. We would like to thank North Carolina Supreme Court Associate Justice, Justice Anita Earls, for sharing her thoughts about uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, and sharing her thoughts about the legacy and life of United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your time with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.